Welcome back to Disgusting Baseball. This is episode 208. I am your host, Matt Lyons. And in this week's episode, we've got some meatballs. Talk about some stuff from Guardians Baseball over the last week. We're going to talk about Peyton Battenfield's MLB debut, a Guardians bullpen on the ropes, or is it? Oscar Gonzalez's struggles, and we'll answer your questions and more. Joining me, as always, is Mr. Merritt Rolfing. Merritt, how you doing? I'm being pulled into a horrible uh, black hole of reading about Frank Marshall, director and producer, for some reason. <laughs> just these this holes you just stumbled This is all time to say the church's fault. Uh, I'm great though. Thanks for asking. That's good. Uh, I know you got to see the boys in person this week. I think we mentioned that last week that you were I was gonna go going to, game. and now we've got the odyssey of going to a baseball game. Hooray. Two games. It was a hoot. Such so much fun. Yeah. The first time I sat in the seat I paid for. The second time I did not eat cr- eat my butt. Ushers at Nats Park. I will not sit where I paid because those seats were bad, and the seats I wanted to sit in were good. I don't um, imagine the the Nats Park is uh, hopping at this time of year for the Nats. It team. is. They were listen. They had nearly half as many people at the game on Sunday as they had at the XFL game about 300 yards away. So, I mean... <laughs> Not a good listen, time to be a Nationals fan, but... Listen, I mean, if you can pull nearly half as many as the uh, league-leading D.C. defenders, I think that's something you can hang your hat on, Matt. All right? Now, sure, they play in a small soccer stadium <laughs> that actually holds half the, half the crowd that uh, Nats Park does. Immaterial, to say the least. Now, I don't think you were you at the opener for this series against the Nationals. Yes, no? I went on Friday and I went on Sunday. Right? Only Did they give years, right? Josh Bell a big ovation or no? They had to have, right? I wouldn't call there. it big because the crowd was small. Well, but I mean, was, <laughs> relative to the crowd size, was it a big ovation? There was, there, there was a recognition. I think people were happy to see him back. You know, I was uh, I was sitting in a crowd um, of majority season ticket holders. Um, a friend of my wife's uh, had season tickets, so we sat next to him. And so those are all people who go like every game. They all know each other and stuff like that. Um, they all seemed very happy to see him back. Um, and he had a great weekend, which I guess they were almost happy to see him go, too. Yeah, uh, yeah this was his, his big breakout weekend. Yeah, yeah, great, yeah great, couple of, great couple of days. But no, there was there was a decent little ovation. I think he stepped out his way very briefly and almost had the, you know, a, a penalty called on him. But, you know, that's, that's modern baseball for you. So, yeah. Uh, you know what else is modern baseball, Matt? What, Matt? Meatballs. Meatballs. Meatballs are modern baseball, obviously, where we talk about specific things from last week in Guardians baseball. Uh, mine is not Josh Bell related this week, although I guess it probably could have been. But mine is Jose Ramirez on 3-0 counts because Ooh. in that series on Saturday's game against the Nationals, 3-0 count, top of the fifth inning. The Guardians are down 4-3 to with a runner on third and one out. Jose gets an absolute meatball down the middle of the plate. Delicious. 85-mile-per-hour slide. It does not slide. He crushes it 420 feet. Um, just... All around, <laughs> just his first home run of the season, <laughs> yeah. a, a 3-0 count. It's just peak Jose Ramirez. I went back and looked on, on play index, and since he was since he became a full-time player in 2016, he's tied with Cody Bellinger and Enojino Suarez for the most home runs on a 3-0 count with five in that span, which I thought was pretty amazing because I, I feel like he swings a lot on 3-0 counts. He's also worked a lot of 3-0 counts. Um, he's mm-hmm. third. He was third in that span, 174 behind Freddie Freeman and Bryce Harper. So he gets wow. a lot, and he also swings a lot. Um, he's also just very good in general on 3-0 counts, just looking at like when he knows to swing. And, and all the home runs were very obvious, like get-me-over kind of pitches that he crushed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of hope that he would be in more prestigious company with his overall, but he's, he's pretty far behind. Can you guess who, since 1901, who has the most home runs on a 3-0 count? 
Babe Ruth. Nope, that'd be Jim Tomey in oh, 17. <laughs> it's a weirdly recent list. I don't know what about the 90s other than the steroids, but made everybody hit home runs on 3-0 counts. Because Jim Tomey leads with 17, and then it was Sammy Sosa, Fred McGriff, Greg Vaughn, Carlos Delgado, Jeff Bagwell, Barry Bonds, Juan Gonzalez, and Ken Griffey Jr. I guess, was it the don't swing on 3-0 thing? Maybe that was especially followed before that <laughs> just like in Babe Ruth's time you just don't swing on 3-0 you don't yeah, it's, it's rude it's not gentlemanly to swing on a 3-0 pitch this is against the unwritten rules of baseball <laughs> what the devil are you doing sir yeah. <laughs> what the devil um yeah Jose Ramirez is tied for 25th overall with about a dozen players so it's not like he's nowhere but but his five home runs is not exactly at the top I was kind of hoping it would be and it would have been a more interesting meatball but it was still a decent meatball because he's crushed a bunch of 3-0 counts and not many people do it as well as he does recently and it's nice that he got his his first home run finally so that was fun yeah he's he's um he's i don't i wouldn't call him an aggressive swinger i think he's you know more aggressive than some but um he's definitely is selectively aggressive and you know i think he's something like that i think someone who really has a good feel for the game which uh, i can't remember was last week the meatball before a week before when my meatball was inherently jose ramirez reads the game like uh i guess a wizard reading a you know a spell book so maybe he just he can see that the pitcher is because who was the pitcher at that point it would have been Chad Cole. Oh yeah, one of the one of the mighty mighty starting pitchers. Of, <laughs> one oof, of the I many waves it. of arms the Nationals have. What a murderous row of pitching I saw this weekend. Let me tell you, from both sides. Yeah, so it's it's not like he was facing some some beast or anything like that. Chad Cole, you know, he's having a nice little professional career for himself, but you, you don't walk around with an eight fifty eight fifty nine ERA even this early in the season in a career four eighty four. Yeah, I, although I would assume if you're facing bad pitchers most of the time on a three zero count, you just kind of assume they can't get it over. So maybe it's it doesn't. Very fair. Be but again, interesting. Like, it could be a reading of the situation. Like yeah. He's, oh, yeah. He, like where the pitches were and things of that nature. Like what he was trying. I mean, I, I, I didn't look too deeply into it before as you were talking about this. But like what what the sequence was, but perhaps he just. I mean, it was also slider sliders. I'm going to throw a fastball. It's like donk idiot, big old dummy. (laughs) It was the absolute meatballiest slider I've ever seen. It was, it could not have been more dead center cement mixer (laughs) did not slide pitch. So I'm sure he read that extremely well and just absolutely crushed it. But the unslider delicious, (laughs) which what's your uh, meatball this week? I want to talk about the Cleveland guardians highest scoring inning of the year. (laughs) That happened on Sunday. They scored four runs. In the game that they lost. <laughs> awesome. In the game that they lost. <laughs> and the reason I want to talk about that, the top of the third, they scored four runs. And I just kind of want to go through these very briefly and talk about how disgustingly Guardian, Guardian-esque this was. Because I, I watched all the, I was at, this is one of the games I was at. It was just, it led off the game with a double from Mike Zanino, which they, oh, pretty hard hit. No, actually, it was just played very poorly by Victor Robles. Uh, so it's an 84-mile-an-hour exit velocity. And then Will Brennan doubled an 82-mile-an-hour batted ball too, that was just kind of, yeah, not hit hard, but just kind of sliced away from the left fielder, so he couldn't make a play on it. And then a fielding error that literally hit their set their shortstop C.J. Abrams in the chest. Uh, I just I couldn't really, couldn't I, I don't know how you don't make that play. Uh, then Stephen Kwan singled a ground ball up, up the middle, and it was one hundred and ninety eight miles an ninety eight point seven miles an hour. But you know, again, it's a ground ball up the middle. A year ago, that hit is not there. A stolen base. It was also you know compiled compounded. By a missed catch error by the third baseman, Jaime Candelario. And Gabriel called it on strikes. Jose Ramirez grinds out softly to move the runner. And then Josh Bell did finally actually hit an actual line drive, 105 mile an hour double to score the fourth run. But all this to say, just 
levels and levels of trash that we, I, I, you could just hear the, the, the you know the air exiting the stadium and just the you know, the the meager number of Nats fans. Which, by the way, I got to say, Cleveland travels. The meager number of Nets fans just sighing heavily because they already knew who was on the mound, Patrick Corbin, the worst pitcher in baseball last year. And to watch him not only not pitch well, but also give up just some absolute BS runs uh, just has to hurt. Obviously, you know, the Guardians are losing because their bullpen collapsed, which we'll get to. But they also did find it, finish it off with a strikeout by Oscar Gonzalez, which is kind of a bummer. I like watching just the Guardians rip apart the soul of other teams. Like watching their broadcast, I, I imagine it's fun even in person being – in the opposing stadium, just watching the the air leave <laughs> like that. Uh, it's just this is fun to watch, especially after years of the Royals doing it to us. I'm fine doing it to other people now. Because obviously I've watched, you know, I've watched the vast majority of Guardians games on television. And so I never really get to see this stuff live, like what it looks like. And it's just, it looks even goofier in, like in person. Just I can't get over, first of all, just the way that the ball just, Victor Robles just didn't catch the ball in center field. I'm like, that's a, it was, that way he had a can of corn, but it's not like he hit it harder or anything like that. And then the way that CJ Abrams, their, their shortstop, just didn't make a play that I swear to God, that's just, he didn't move. Like, he didn't have to move left or right when the ball was hit to him. It came right at him. I'm sure it took a weird hop or something, but I just understand he didn't make that play. So seeing it in person was very interesting and um, fun trash. Disgusting, if you will. Yeah, this is just kind of an anecdote that you that reminded me of. Like, do you do you feel like you've seen more? I mean, I guess it's because the Guardians hit more of them in general. But like, more balls that have gone up between two outfielders and nobody catches it because it seems like almost every time it happens now, nobody gets it. I don't know if that's that's just me noticing it more. But it seems like in the past, somebody usually comes down with it. But this year, especially, it seems like the Guardians do it. I've watched some other games where it's happening a lot elsewhere. I don't know if communication is worse somehow than than it used to be or. Maybe it's a shift thing because, like, they 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 they're always positioning for optimal. What even in the outfield and everything like that, they will move around. So it could be that as we've there's been a, gr- a greater use of even moving the outfield around, even in minute, you know, in just kind of like small movements. Maybe that has created some some strange holes that we're used to. Maybe just didn't exist in the past, or like you said, maybe people aren't communicating. Maybe it could be. A, so and so is a converted left field or a converted what first baseman or something or putting him in left field as we you know as we've seen the Guardians try in the past with someone like Carlos Santana playing left field in a World Series game, but yeah, you're right. It does seem like I've been seeing more just dumbass blue pits between two people. And you're like, who, who what catch? One of you catch this? Like, what's going on here? It's almost like that hierarchy that's supposed to exist doesn't a lot of the times. Like the yeah. center fielder is supposed to call off everybody, and the outfielder is supposed to call when they're running in, and then it just doesn't happen. Like the other guy doesn't listen as much. It's, they probably should, but it's such a I don't know. Like that is that is like one of the base rules of, of baseball you learn when playing it when you're a little kid. Like this is like you said, this is the hierarchy. Like th- this is who gets to make the play, and like it just seems like people don't listen or they don't call for it or I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's because the like the outfielder maybe doesn't call for it because he just assumes the other guy knows. But this is why you have to communicate. Communication is important, man. It really it is. Sure is. <laughs> Um, so moving on to just our, our general topics for this week, the first one, just talking about an impressive rookie debut, because unlike last year, we haven't had a lot of them so far this year. I guess Hunter Gaddis isn't a rookie, but his first starts have not been fun, but we got to see a good starting honor from Peyton Battenfield. We'll see more of them, um, later Tuesday on the doubleheader when it starts. But for now we can talk about how, how good he was against the Yankees. Um, 4.2 innings pitched four hits, one earned run, zero walks, three strikeouts. This was kind of against Yankees B lineup and the Guardians still lost, but I mean, he looked good. <laughs> that's, that's a bonus to come out of uh, an overall pretty not great series for the Guardians. 
Um, it was kind of neat seeing him on the uh, pitching actually in the majors. We've seen a lot of him in the minors, obviously. And kind of the thought was watching him in there. He's kind of like a stretched out Aaron Savali. He's just a lot taller. He's got this big overhead delivery. And, and one thing, since we've got the, the baseball savant data now, I noticed that like, I, I can't tell if it's intentionally and a good thing, but like the way his pitches are, they're all basically on the same horizontal plane. They just drop further, which I thought was kind of interesting. I don't know if he's doing that intentionally or his pitches just aren't moving the way they're supposed to. But if you look at like the movement on all of his pitches, they're just kind of stacked on top of each other. I wonder if that is, is just like good tunneling that he kind of has, because also his release point is another fun thing I like to look at, especially recently this year is, is he has a really consistent release point that he has. Um, and if that, if all his pitches look basically the same until the last second and they drop, I don't know if that kind of helps him get by with, I mean, I mean very similar to Zach please like there's no dominant pitch that he has, but he kind of made him work this time against the Yankees and, and maybe he can do it again because he, he tunnels things so well, but yeah, it was just fun watching a rookie come up and, and start well for the guardians again this year. Like they did so many times last year, Peyton Battenfield, we've, I don't, I don't know how long we'll see him either as a starter or sticking around with all the, the arms that are coming, but I would assume he's going to get quite a few starts now if he keeps pitching as well as he did against the Yankees. Yeah, I really like, I mean, like you said, with the, I wish you had brought up the whole Zach Plezak of it all, uh, because now I feel less good about this, but with the kind of making it seem like it's the same pitch, I mean, his cutter is not like impressive off, you know, just in an isolated sense, but again, he's he got a lot of whiffs off it though. He, he got, he, he, all three of his strikeouts came off his cutter. Uh, you got a bunch of whiffs off of it. He, he, he has now gained officially a run value of negative one on his cutter, according to Baseball Savant. Again, this is all very early and very small sample size stuff, but considering he does not have an overly effect, you know, powerful uh, four-seam or anything like that, having a cutter that you can kind of pair off that, and then we only saw one changeup out of his hand. It would be neat to see if that has a bit of a, you know, a, a nice um, kind of arm side run out of his hands to compile with all that stuff. The fact that he only throws, throws those three pitches in a curveball is interesting, but Again, it wasn't like the most impressive, like you said, not the most impressive debut on earth, but it was effective against, while it might still be the B lineup of, you know, the the Yankees, he did, he did so strike out Judge, and he got a couple other strikeouts, and he only allowed, you know, what, two two runs, one earned, with no walks in just under five innings. Um, worked himself into some trouble, and that happens. Again, the, those guys are good, even if it's not all the good players. He still had Judge Rizzo and Stanton in there. I, I don't know what to think about him. It's been interesting to see these, you know, two in a row now, just big galoots being the guys they're calling up. And when all the good pitchers are like these kind of comparatively smaller guys for the most part. So whether this is, again, like you said, just kind of eating up some innings and you know, we'll see him for five starts maybe until we start getting past the like the Super 2 deadline or something like that. Or once we start, you know, hearing the the, the drums of Tristan McKenzie on the, on the horizon or something like that, that's fine. Um between him and, again, you mentioned before, please act just a couple of very decent pitching performances out of guys that we either didn't expect or fully expected the the, the reverse. So, I do kind of miss when it felt like arms were just coming up and throwing in the high 90s for the Guardians. I feel, it, I feel like it's been a long time. <laughs> like, I guess even McKenzie doesn't hit that high, but like when it was, I mean, there was just Bieber, or no, yeah, Bieber and Carrasco and Salazar and Clevenger and Bauer, they just had came pitcher after pitcher after pitcher, and now it's been seems like it's been since what like Bieber Cy Young when they've had a dominant pitcher come up and, and stick around I mean I guess McKenzie counts too last year but but his velocity is down like, like to a, a more average level I mean it, it all folds back obviously to and you think about the names you just listed like some of the a lot of those guys were well at least one of those guys Clevenger was an acquisition from elsewhere uh so was Bauer wasn't he, he, he yeah as a, pro- a different like, team 
Yeah, he's he pitched a little pitched bit for, a for the long... Diamondbacks, but right. Well, yeah, exactly. Okay, yeah. So he did, he, but again, not a draft either. So like, and we all know like the profile that Cleveland guys that Cleveland drafts. It's again, Battenfield was a draftee by the Rays, I think. At least they got no, him from the Rays. Either way. Uh, the uh, Houston Astros originally. Oh, okay. In 2019, but they like you know guys with pitchability, which Battenfield I think demonstrated with a good accuracy, really pounded the zone, and then there's something they, and they hope to build off of that frame. Like that's why I was intrigued by having him and Gaddis kind of at the same time, big frame guys who you'd think you could tap into some kind of combination of just power and also extension to create some you know at least solid pitching. It just hasn't worked out. I mean. Size isn't all that matters. You look at someone like, I can't believe I'm going to reference this guy of all people, but Loke Van Mill, a player no one remembers. <laughs> Not but he at was all. A, he, was, um, he, he was the tallest pitcher in professional baseball back in 2010 and 2011. He was like seven foot one. Uh, he played for the New Britain Rock Cats. They're now the Hartford Yard Goats. He could throw like 89 miles an hour. Like he was just so unimpressive. He was, just, he was so tall. And so, I, I, it was when I worked for that team. He was on the team with the same time they had the shortest player in, in, in professional baseball. Uh, was that Chris Cates? Something like that, maybe. It's going to stick in the back of my head now. But anyway, yeah, Loke Van Mill could never throw over 90. And so, like, seeing someone like Bat come in there, you know, again, not, not huge, huge. He's a little bigger than me, quite honestly, but decent size, I suppose. He's, you know, small to you, obviously, because you're a mammoth. But <laughs> Towering. Behemoth of a man. As we if, all know, we... Matt, Matt Lyons is seven foot six, uh, 380 <laughs> pounds. He's basically uh, just a younger, uh, handsomer Andre the Giant. <laughs> and I throw 87 miles per hour. Exactly. But the extension, man, you know, <laughs> the out of the hand, crazy. It's perceived velocity. That's what we care about here. I feel like if they could combine Battenfield and Gaddis, it would be one hell of a pitcher. Like, if you've got Battenfield control... And and Gaddis's curveball and changeup, oh, that'd be good. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. we can't mash them together. If one of them can figure out something, the other one has. Like if Gaddis can control his damn pitches for once, or a Battenfield can get any kind of pitch that looks impressive, it's it's going to be good. So I guess it's not terrible that they're one step away from two different guys being really good. I just don't know yeah. if they're gonna they're gonna get there. We're just kind of in the the pit or not the the. The gap, the valley between the two sets of really good the pitchers. The dark territory, if you will. The dark, the the dark area. Yeah, yeah. It seems a golf film, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, it's, I, I think teams have done worse in their, their golf than having Peyton Battenfield and, and Hunter Gaddis. To, to get Cleveland the did when they rolled out, uh, within one year, David Huff, Jeremy Sowers. Who else was on that team? Mitch Talbot. Trevor, Trevor Crow was an outfielder. But he looked like a different year, but, yeah, but again, Bruce just, Chen at one point was uh, Bruce Chen, a, a classic. Yeah, sure. Yeah, the... the I wonder, do you think we exist anymore in an era where you call someone like a bat and field up and you hope they develop into a good pitcher at the major league level? Like they're unimpressive in their first couple starts, but then they turn into something or. Oh yeah. I think so. Do, I mean, Tito's do, 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 mentioned do, do, that in post games a bunch that they're trying to like develop and, and pitch these guys at the same time. I just kind of figured that with the systems set in place and just the, you know, as, you know, as these teams have kind of centralized so much underneath themselves, as opposed to kind of having these farm systems for so long, kind of just kind of out there. I, 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 maybe that's happening less than I think that you do that because you just, one would assume that you can develop all the things you need to be a good pitcher at the minors, you know, a good fastball, a good breaking ball. And then it's just the mental stuff, I suppose. Cause like, it's not like Battenfield here is going to start adding miles per hour to his whatever, or, and it just seems like it'd be rough if I'm a guy who has an okay changeup and an okay uh, cutter 
to work on developing those things while facing even the tiger. You know what I mean? Like even even like a lineup like the Tigers, or the Royals, or something like that. Like it's just tough, I suppose. It's it's not really a thing you you spend time working on. You would want to do that somewhere where games. Not to say the game in Columbus doesn't matter, but in the grand well, scheme of things, all. I suppose. You know, <laughs> yeah, you know. but also it kind of doesn't matter, right? It's developmental. So I, I don't know. I'm, I'm just uh, it's something I think about sometimes because like. I, I guess the expectation is more like they're ninety percent of the way there, and an extra ten percent is that the ineffable something that is just the difference between the quad A and the and the and the major leaguer. Uh, like you see, like you see that more hitters, I suppose. So I don't know. Maybe I, I'm just because I, again, if I look at someone like Battenfield and Gaddis, they look like such classic starting pitchers uh, in their own right, but they just. I mean, four point two innings of two run ball, one earned with three strikeouts. It's, I'm, I'm not going to write home about that about how amazing it was. It's nice to see he had, he had a good you know debut and maybe tomorrow or today when you listen if you listen to this one as it comes up uh, he performs better. But yeah, no, I think that's a good point. I think it's a lot like like I think you're right. I think it's like ninety percent all the physical stuff is done in the minors, and then that minor that uh, the mental stuff is at the the majors. But it's like. I don't know, like video game development where 90% of it is actually making the game, but then the last 10, 10% is bug testing and that takes forever. The bug testing and polish, like the, the major league level of being a pitcher is the bug testing and polish. And that just takes a lot of trial and error to get it right. And that's fair. Some teams get it quicker than others. And some players probably get it quicker than others. And maybe we'll see if Peyton Batfield is one who gets it quicker and Hunter Gaddis hopefully eventually does. Or else he's probably not going to be pitching much longer. I, I can't imagine he's going to get many more chances if he's, his outings look like his last one, especially with all the guys coming and Aaron Savali coming back eventually interest in McKenzie. But. And I guess even having said all that, literally Shane Bieber's on this team and he came up in his first year at a 450 ERA. But I, I, I right. don't know, he specifically was just someone who you saw and were just like, this guy's going to be so good. Like he just, he, <laughs> oh, yeah. He, it looked he, like he already from the had beginning, so yeah. much. Like it, it was like, this is strange. Like why is he so like good already? And that's something they're like, He's just like Corey Kluber, like only mentality-wise, guys. It's like no, actually, he's very effective as a pitcher as well. I don't know. Again, I'm not, I'm, it's not like I'm like writing off Battenfield or Gaddis right now because again, they I think they have some interesting tools, um, and there's something there. And get what Battenfield threw fifty-five pitches or something like that. I think by design he was pretty much out before he reached the third time, more than facing a couple guys, but. Which was good. They should have done that with with probably some other pitchers. That <laughs> never happened. But I kind of like when they stick to that now, especially with young pitchers like Hunter, like Peyton Batfield, and and probably they should do with Hunter Gaddis. Yeah, take him out before they go for the third time. And like that changeup you mentioned that he threw, he threw that that one in the fifth inning. So I'd imagine if he ever goes does get better and go deeper in the games, that's going to be a pitch we see like in the mm-hmm. fifth inning and on, just to as the the name implies, to change things up a little bit. I mean, it could have been too. He also just um, his other crap wasn't working. So <laughs> yeah, that kind of makes it a little. Gotta, gotta. Well, one, of, one of two things was going on there, and we'll, we'll never be sure which. So there you go. Yeah. Um, so since we last recorded, I think even last time the bullpen was a little bit shaky, but uh, it, it doesn't seem quite as invincible as it did coming into the season. No. Um, they allowed a combined eight innings, eight earned runs of relief since last time we recorded. Three of those were Xavier and Curry filling in in a blowout, which, I mean, even though he allowed three runs, that's just kind of what you want him to do is come in and eat up a lot of innings. But also Nick Sandlin looked bad his last time out. Tim Heron. Maybe is an Andrew Miller. I don't know who compared him to Andrew Miller, but that guy's probably an idiot. I don't know who it was, but uh, I don't know. So, what are your just general thoughts on? I guess the bullpen is we've seen they looked a little bit shakier lately. Whenever it's not Class A and Karen Chat coming out every single game, who's going to kind of step up to to fill in for him? Well, and you mentioned too. I mean, uh, Stefan uh, did not look all that effective over the. I believe he had a, a, a less than stellar outing 
was it on Friday? Because I remember seeing him not be good when I was in the in the park. I don't know. Um, but I will say someone like um, it must have been Stefan then. Yeah. Okay. I've I've never been like hyper sold on on Nick, on Nick Sandlin and Tim Heron is uh, young, right? So it's like he has how many innings under his belt? Not that many at all. Yeah. So Sandlin one is one though. I just I don't know. He he always seemed to be someone who was just kind of skating at skating out of trouble. Like every time he would like he'd come in, like he doesn't have anything overpowering. He's just kind of a change of look kind of a pitcher. If that makes sense, like he just kind of comes in and gives you kind of more of a sidearm weird thing going on. Like he's good for, for starting with the sixth guy in the lineup or something. Yeah. Or like Peyton Battenfield, because they did that. Like he's has this big six foot four overhead release. And then you bring right. in Sandlin and he's slanted from his waist. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So, I mean, again, I, I we're, we're not talking, I, I guess if it's any consolation, we're not talking about guys who I was like circling on the, on the scorecard saying, these are the ones who must carry us to glory. And if they don't, we are doomed. So, because you know, you look at the, some of the other guys. Morgan's been great still all year. He hasn't given up a run. De Los Santos has been solid. Karen Jack, like you mentioned, has had his ups and downs, but I think he's starting to figure it out. And Class Ace, same kind of thing. I know he uh, gave up a game-winning hit on uh, was it Saturday? I believe something like that. But I think Sunday was the only one they lost. I'm sorry. No, yeah. So it, I'm, yeah. Uh, everything blurs together. It wasn't <laughs> it all does, maybe, yeah. maybe against the Yankees. I don't know. Um, but uh, he gave he gave up a game winning hit uh, or uh, the game the eventual game winning run uh, this past week, which again these things happen. It's still only um, whatever month it is, April. Yeah, I I I guess we were all getting a little bit giddy if we're being honest with ourselves. <laughs> that okay, yeah, they're they're going eight deep. It's fun, you know. We're class A. Who cares? We got Stefan too. We got Karen Chag, and then uh, we got the young guy. We got De Los Santos. We got Morgan. Like. You even when we're resting the big guys, you're doomed. We're, we're going to go into the playoffs, and we're going to have starters go one and a half times for the order, four innings max, and then we're just going to eat it all up with with relief pitching. No one will ever score a run again. Maybe those days will come. Maybe <laughs> I don't know. Maybe Sam will figure it out, and uh, maybe Tim Sam, maybe Tim Heron is maybe not. You know, a like some fool said, a <laughs> some idiot, the the second coming of uh, Andrew Miller, but maybe he is still effective because he still has a good, you know, good pitch. He's still got some decent velocity, and he's like he's just a little baby, like he's very young. So what is he? Twenty six. I guess he's not the, not that, that much of a little baby. So you know, again, he still throws hard. He's still got a good slider, and um, sometimes the 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 thing that reads what kind of pitch it is thinks it's a different type of pitch, and so that just tells me even better things. And he's got a lot of spin. Just kind of going through all of his other, all of his different numbers here. I think he'll be all right. I think he just needs to, like we were just talking about with guys like Battenfield and Gaddis, he just needs to figure out what he can. And I think, and it's, this is so important for a relief pitcher specifically, what he can and cannot throw against a major league hitter. Like even bad ones were pretty good in the, in the minors, and in the minors he blew people away. But here it's like you can't throw. You can't go like slider, 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 and then throw a meatball down the middle. Like even if it's a ninety-six, it's going to get crushed. So, and again, even against bad hitters, like did he give it one of the many, many hits to Jimer Candelario? Let me tell you how horrible it was to watch Jimer Candelario <laughs> just terrorize Cleveland on Sunday. I was like, I thought we got rid of you. What are you doing here? Stop <laughs> it. Uh, so that was I think he was because not a whole lot of people gave up. I mean, a bunch gave up hits, but he's one of the few that gave up runs. So I would assume. Uh, Nah, it was Garcia. It was Larry. Oh yeah. Oh my God, Larry Garcia. Oh, is it Larry God. or Lewis? I thought it was, I thought it was oh, Larry Garcia. It is Luis but... Garcia. Never mind. Okay. Okay. I was going to say not him. No, because I was thinking the same too. thing when I saw Garcia. I was like, is that Larry Garcia? 
I saw one of Giant Mark Candelario's greatest games. <laughs> I've seen him play so much bad baseball when he was on Detroit. You're at the game that he's going to tell his grandkids about someday. 100%. got to hit off Tim Harry. You know what? I, a lot of those hits were off Shane Bieber, too, is the thing. Anyway, yeah, the bullpen, again, I don't know. It, it feels equivocating and kind of mealy-mouthed and saying, yeah, I think it'll be fine. But I just think that we're we're learning, you know, we're learning who slots in where in the pecking order. And there may come a day when Tim Heron does rise to the challenge. I think a team like um, Tampa is a great example of this, where they just have these weird nameless men who arrive, and all of a sudden they're gods and this is just the process of finding our own nameless men who show up and just destroy and then disappear because they start costing any money at all. <laughs> they so, just vanish into the ether. Nobody yeah, knows what happens. Tra- tra- I don't know. What, what did they trade um, oh, Tomato, uh, Phil Maton for? That was a mild straw. Exactly. So what can maybe Tim Herrick can figure it out and they can turn him into, I don't know, Shoei Otani or something, whatever. <laughs> we had different angles we were aiming at there. <laughs> But yeah, I'm with you. I don't, I'm not. I don't think it's that concerning. I, I think it's just kind of a thing where even you're going to blow games. Like you can't have every game be great, and they just it's kind of happened. I, I, I'm agree with you that too. That Salen's a good change of slot guy, but he's never going to be a guy like he needs to be. No, I mean high up I in think, the leverage order. I think seeing him in the position he was on Sunday specifically is exactly where I want to see Nick Sandlin, which is. On a day when the top four arms or whatever aren't really able to do anything outside of Stefan, I suppose, and you're hoping that Bieber can give you seven and he can't, and so he's kind of thrust into duty and he falls apart. I, I think by the end of the year he'll have another decent season. You know, he'll probably go. I don't know what what, what are some good numbers that you put it up. Like what did he do last year? I think he was okay, right? He was a two twenty five ERA, three sixty eight fielding independent pitching. So yeah, I just he's never been. Dominant. He's just been lucky to say to a bit to to a degree. You know, got to make your own luck sometimes. And on on the note of his usage, I think like credit where it's due for Tito so far. I think it's been. I mean, we razz him for a bunch of things about his decision making, but he, it's been pretty spot on. Where I would probably put these guys. And even looking at um, like fan graphs, they have the the game leverage index. Where there's there's a bunch of different ways to look at it, but one of them is just GMLI, which is the average. Um, the, the average leverage index when a player comes in. So how intense the situation is. And it's like pretty clear cut which guys are where. It's like Trevor Stefan is comes in as the most high leverage, which I would agree with. Emmanuel Classe is second because he's the closer. And of course, he's going to get a bunch of them. James Karinczak third. Like that's the top tier. And that's the order I would also want them. Yeah. Because I want Trevor Stefan as the fireman. I want Emmanuel Classe. I guess if, if he's the established closer, fine. He's going to get however many high leverage situations. James Karinczak, I want him third because you never know what you're going to get. But then you also have like the second level is where it's like Eli Morgan and Daniel De Los Santos who haven't gotten, I mean, Eli Morgan has a lot of run and he only has like six innings. I wish he would get more innings, but he's also being used probably where he should be. So it's not yeah. too much to fall. And then the bottom you have Nick Sandlin, Tim Heron and Xavier Curry, which again, Curry has been, I never want to downplay the role of just this garbage man that comes in and eats up a bunch of innings when your starters are garbage. Like I think he saved the bullpen a couple times when he's coming and do that. Trash um, man's a hallowed a hallowed role in the world of baseball. Let's be honest here. There needs to be a wing in the Hall of Fame as Trash Man. Yeah, I mean, even and I'll say this too. You know, I mean, April is also kind of a learning experience. It should, this, some of this could probably and should happen in March, but the, the you know the actual game is much different in many ways than when you're playing in Arizona. The manager is learning when he can where he can play these guys too. Because I'm sorry, but for the most part, like outside of a few arms. 
one year to the next, a reliever is very, it can be very different. I mean, I think you mentioned him. De La Santos is a great example of this. He was just dreadful in 2021, like really bad. I get what, 637 ERA. I mean, a 526 fielding independent pitching. And the next year, he was solid gold. Like, he was so good last year for Cleveland. And this year, again, he's, we'll see. So it's, it's, it's part of them figuring each other out, figuring out when he can, where he can play guys, who he has right now in his back pocket. And just hopefully, you know, not falling into old um, bad habits, I suppose. So, De-, De La Santos, I, I know I mentioned this in the past, but I think he is the the he's the kind of the, the the hinge point in effect of the of the bullpen right now. And unless they can find a better arm, if you're better than him, then you are on the top. If you're worse than him, then you are uh, kind of on the B team. And he kind of yeah, you're Nick Sandler, exactly. And he kind of waffled. Like I would put him above someone like uh, Eli Morgan, even though he Eli Morgan is not allowed to run yet. I'm sorry, but any of the other sentences being able to throw what 98 or whatever it is at times, that's, that's just valuable, Matt. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's just straight value right there. And, and also like when these other guys start coming up, when like Hunter Gaddis will be a better reliever than he is a starter and maybe Peyton Battenfield will get some relievers. Like they've, they still got a bunch of guys that can be shoved into the movers, oh, but I mean, worst case scenario, Peyton Battenfield is built to be a, just a swing starter trash man. Like yeah. exa- exactly like what Xavier Curry, Curry is basically. Yeah. He just, <laughs> Like that's, I think that's his worst case scenario, which is not a worst case scenario. I think the last thing worth mentioning too is that Class A. You said his velocity last week was kind of concerned. He hit ninety nine the other day, so he's ninety six percentile for velocity. I think if if he can live there, it's basically the difference between like the ultimate best reliever in the game ever, Cy Young worthy closer, and also just a really great reliever. Which if he settles at that, whatever, that's fine. I think. And hey, look at someone like Jordan Hicks. He can't get anyone out right now, and he throws 105 miles an hour. He's the hardest <laughs> throwing guy there is. So what are you going to yeah, do? I will. I will take Class A blowing a game once in a while if it means he's super reliable the rest of the time. Look, velocity is really important because I'd rather have a guy that throws 95 than 90. But I think uh, we talked about this last year or last week. But if he can't throw 102, go throw 99. I think we'll be all right. Yeah, <laughs> he'll he, survive because <laughs> he has that slider now too. Like, I'm, like he's just he's so dangerous now. So um, someone who's slightly less dangerous at least this year. Our boy Oscar Gonzalez. We love him. SpongeBob theme song. Face of a small child, body of a man built built to hit baseballs and eat pitches for breakfast. Um, but he's always just kind of had this problem of swinging too much, not drawing enough walks. Kind of came to light last season. Um, but also he just kind of powered through it. <laughs> a lot of it was just luck. Um, a lot of Bapit luck. As our own Chris Davies um, wrote earlier today, there's not a whole lot that has changed between last year when he looked like a, a pretty decent hitter. And this year when he does not, he has a negative seven WRC plus, which small sample size, but you never want to be negative in a, in a stat that the average is a hundred. Uh, it's, it's not really good, but no, that seems almost impossible. It <laughs> seems like it shouldn't happen. Go. That's math, baby. <laughs> There's basically nothing between either what he's doing or what the pitchers are doing. It's, it just seems like it could be a lot of just luck based, but that's also, it's kind of the problem when you're a guy like him last year, who was so good because he was luck based, it, you're going to have these, these huge dips and it might not be as reliable as someone like Will Brennan, who is probably constantly going to get on base and do something at the plate. I'm like Oscar Gonzalez who's going to go through these big dips where he's not doing a whole lot. So it's just kind of a rough stretch for Oscar Gonzalez. And I guess we'll just see what he does from here and out to, to reverse that luck that he's had so far. What if, so right now, Will Brennan has a 111 OPS plus last year, Gonzalez was at 125. But let me ask you, I mean, listen, in sheer numbers, obviously you want the higher number. It's important. But would you rather have the more consistent guy or the streaky guy? And it's just something I think about all the time. And is that something that we really even need to worry about? 
is that even a real thing you can worry about i suppose you, you know what i'm saying like or another great example of this is Ahmed Rosario. He is a toilet boy right now. And I think in May, <laughs> he's probably going to hit 600, right? He's going to hit 10 home runs. He's going to be incredible. Like, he's the greatest player in the history of time. This is this is truly wild. Jason Kipnis was very similar to this. Remember, he'd have these insane Mays and Junes and then just be kind of for months on end. So, I don't know. What is... Is there something to be said for being consistent, but slightly worse, but still good? Again, someone like, like with Brennan hitting... Whatever, I don't know, 290, 345, 400, or someone hitting 290, 327, 461, you know? So I don't know. Just um, something I think about. I don't really have a comment beyond that, but just something I've been contemplating for a little while now because emotionally, I'm incredibly frustrated by watching Ahmed Rosario and Oscar Gonzalez right now. It's just it's very bothersome to me. But then watching someone like, Jose Ramirez is the best. Or watching someone like um, Andres Jimenez is wonderful. He just seems to always be doing pretty well constantly. Oh, Stephen Kwan's a perfect example. I don't think... I know he had that really bad May last year. That was about to happen. Adjustments. But he feels like, as time goes on, he'll be it's kind of like a metronome where he's just constantly doing his thing. So, I don't know. Thoughts? Yeah, no. I think they're probably like... I think you need a mix of both. Like, you need the guys... The, the absolute... I mean, kind of obvious, like top end of the scale of streaky guys you'd want is like a David Ortiz who just knows how to turn on the streakiness in the postseason. That's true. Um, but without that, you just kind of have Oscar Gonzalez where you just kind of hope he does it at the right time. But also, yeah, if you make a team, otherwise, yeah, yeah. If you make a team out of Will Brennan's, you kind of end up with what the Yankee series was last year where they clearly needed a home run here or there and they just couldn't get it. Like maybe if you had a couple more streaky guys who could, like if you have a Josh Bell who could go on a hot streak in the playoffs, that's kind of true when you have to take off. So I, I think maybe they, they recognize they need a couple more guys like that. And that's why they added bell and mm-hmm. they're kind of hoping Oscar Gonzalez does not do this all year long. I mean, I think what we're, we're circling around the commentary of, they just need more power quite honestly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, a guy who, who is swinging a bit more for the fences more often is kind of like where you're, you're intimating here, but it's pretty obvious is going to swing and miss quite a bit more is going to look really bad at the plate for stretches because Whatever you just won't see a fastball for like you know, for three days or something like that. Um, I think it hurts uh, Gonzalez to not have overly consistent at bats. I know he's played in most games, but there's been a lot of kind of defensive replacements and stuff like that too. So it's only forty at bats. I don't think it's time to crap our pants over this or anything like that. Uh, forty bats into his career last year, he was hitting. Let's find out. I think he was really bad at first too, right? Uh, no, he was actually nope. incredible. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Although he, he must have dipped us. I know he went down at some point because there was talk about like, we got to get rid of this guy. All right, but. so I just, I just, 49 plate appearances, um, whatever. What, what's a couple between friends? Between uh, May 26th and June 8th, 12 games. All, started all of them. He was in 354, uh, 367, 458. So... Um, and let's break it down. So, uh, next, next few games, he then hit 302 over a, a period of games. And then after the next few games, he hit 156, 182, 313. So that's all within one month, too. Uh, ebbs and flows, if ever I saw a player. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I, I know Chris mentioned sending him down to Columbus to work it out. But, like, this is that kind of well, we, we keep on coming back to this because it's just been a problem with that Cleveland is running itself into by accident of developing pretty good players with this kind of log jam of mediocrity to above averageness. Like 
we, we keep on talking about these young guys who are coming up. How much more time do they have to spend giving someone like Will Brennan? Will Brennan's a good, another good example. Someone like Will Brennan or uh, Gonzalez or even someone like Stephen Kwan, who, I, again, I love as a player. It's just they, they, they need more home runs. Like it, it's, it sucks to break such a statistically analyzable sport down to such a hit silly little hard. statement. But that is really it. They just need to hit the ball harder more consistently. And I know they're hoping for some growth out of guys like Jimenez and – to, they could hope for any growth out of. Um, I mean, Josh Bell to not be terrible ninety percent of the time. Bell to not be, be terrible one. would be very maybe nice. Jose Ramirez get more of his power. He doesn't have quite that. Um, I, I mean, maybe Quan to get the ten dingers, you know. But like that—that's the thing. We're, we're hoping for them to get from being 29th in in, in home runs to twenty fourth. That's not a recipe for what we all are hoping for eventually. As far as you know, at the very least, a long playoff run, if not a World Series. Um, they do need some of those guys who, you know, you look at the, you look at the numbers that like the, the, the George Valeras and all those guys of the world are putting up in the minors and like, they strike out a ton. Like they're, they are hitting like 260, 270. Like it's not like they're like just annihilating the the baseball in every direction, hitting like superstars. They're big swing, swing and miss guys. And like some of the best players we've seen over the last seen or so years come through Cleveland have been guys like Grady Sizemore, big swing and miss guy. I mean, you mentioned Jim Tomey from one, you know, he's what, that's 20 years ago now, uh, more. Jesus Christ. Uh, <laughs> As I slowly uh, turn the dust in the middle of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, I, I, the problem is, like, I don't know if they have any of these guys coming. I guess, like, George Valera, as you mentioned, but he's injured. And John Kenzie Noel is, I mean, he just looks awful Ooh. when he's not hitting missiles. I mean, if, if we're complaining about Oscar Gonzalez, and we're like, don't worry, John Kenzie Noel is coming. Oh, no, <laughs> I no. I think he's... <laughs> worse as a play to pro. Like, I love listen, the fact that he can absolutely demolish a baseball and I'm sure he'll get a chance at some point, but like I, I oh um Naylor, that's the other guy I was, I was trying to think of another guy who kind of developed some power. Uh, not a big swing and miss guy though. So a part of me thinks that like the philosophy again something I, I kinda contemplate of just because every team has kind of a different drafting philosophy is that they can get these high contact guys and then develop them into guys who can hit for power. You know what I mean? I, Mike, I, 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 I've mentioned in the past, but Brantley in 2014 is the perfect example of this. And I think in the front office's eyes, a dream lineup for them is a bunch of guys who hit 305 with 20 home runs and a bunch of pitchers who throw 93 with a murderous curveball. Basically, what they're trying to rebuild is the 1998 uh, New York Yankees. And you know what? That's fine with me. That's him rule. They were really, really good. <laughs> yeah, but, I'd be okay with that. Yeah, you know, so um, I don't know. Gonzalez is right now a problem, but I don't know what you do about it because I would love for, you know, Will Brennan to get consistent playing time, and he has been. He's been very good. He's, I mean, over his last seven games, I think he's hitting over 300, and he's been very solid on that front. Um, but he got a hit against the lefty. Yeah, he's what 316, 467, 474 over over the last week. Again, sample size never like that. But even for the year, he's still got a 758 OPS, which isn't dreadful. Um, it's right around, you know, it's right around where um, Gonzalez was last year, anyway. So, yeah, I think I think at some point, if he starts hitting lefties and proves he can, I mean, I think you got to go with the consistent guy eventually because I don't think Gonzalez's peaks are probably high enough to to be this streaky unless he can get to like when he first came up last year. But I, I think at some point if Brennan shows he can do without being platoon, you just kinda kinda gotta give it to him. <laughs> if he can hit and not put Oscar Gonzalez in there to the flail and do whatever the hell he's doing, I don't know. But 
So every Monday, I ask on Twitter and Facebook for questions, and this week we got quite a few of them. I think we'll just grab a couple. There's a bunch of good ones. Hell yeah. Thanks, guys. Um, yeah, they're all good. Uh, first one, at Except Frosty. Bad questions. Get out of here. Bad you know who questions. you are who asked a bad yeah. question. Get out of here. At Frosty Granola, he asked, what are the possibilities for the rotation for the next couple of years? Bieber get traded. Espino moves to late inning relief role. Is McKenzie your ace next year? I thought this one would be fun just to use it as a jumping off point as like a prediction for, for starting pitches coming up. So like McKenzie, I think if he comes back this year and is fine without any issues, um, I, I think they probably buy out his arbitration years. Maybe try to squeeze a free agent year in there or two if they can. Um, but I think he's basically the de facto ace. Um, basically, my, my prediction is extremely chalk. I just think it's McKenzie, Gavin Williams, Tanner Bybee, Daniel Espino, and then like Logan Allen, Peyton Batfield, Hunter Gannis, rounding out the end. I mean, if that happens, that's like an all-time development win if three of those guys hit. I think it's even one of Williams, Espino, Bybee, and Allen hit. Like, that's a that's a win. If you get all four of them like that, that's an all-timer. But um, I don't know, unless it's like an external addition, and unless those guys don't all pan out, they're going to be kind of in some trouble in the next couple of years. But that... That's the last thing you said. I, I I don't have anything firm to talk about on this. Like, just I mean, again, it'd be cool if the guys you mentioned pan out, even if two of them do. Like, if one of Espino, Williams, and Bybee pan out as a as a starter, that's a massive win. Same yeah. thing. Like, again, that's just the way it works, right? Um, but I just keep on looking at this supposedly highly touted farm system with all these great prospects, and I'm like, trade them for someone. <laughs> I don't care if it's a highly ranked, you know, I don't care if it's uh, Andrew Painter. Who, you won't get him, obviously, but, you know, whatever. But trade him for either someone pre-arb or what have you, because this is why you have a farm system at the end of the day. I, I, I tweeted this, what, a week or so ago. There was, it was just the Columbus Clippers starting lineup. And I was like, look at these guys, trade them. Like, all of them. I don't care. Like I'm sorry. I don't mean to, be, to treat these guys as commodities, but. At the end of the day, like look look at where um, Nolan Jones is now, right? Or any of those guys from, from the, va- of the the you know the, the the vaunted outfielder prospects from the the early two thousand tens. Like time and time again, just within the Cleveland system, which is we are told constantly so well, it's, it's, it's run so well. Use these as tools to get better players, and then continue your drafting and developing process. But I can't even think of a time where they've done it and they've regretted it so far. Like and recent current ownership because like the only one big one is probably Andrew Miller, uh, that obviously worked out, and then they almost got Jordan or uh, Jonathan Lucroy, and if they did that, who would they've lost? Like, what wasn't it like Yu Chang, Greg Allen, and was it Sean Armstrong? Somebody else? Like that's who See, cares? They got exactly. Jonathan Lucroy. Like I'm sorry, I, I I'm I'm still a little bit upset that they didn't weren't able to pull the trigger on getting Sean Murphy. Yeah, that would have been nice. I don't know if anyone <laughs> noticed what Sean Murphy is doing right now, but. It would have been nice oh, to Lord. deal literally any of the pitching prospects, at least one of them for him. But he's hitting like Mike Zanino, but also he's playing defense. So again, yeah, trade. I, I can't believe that, that a team like the Braves were able to pull that trade off. Like the Braves don't have a farm system anymore. Yeah, they just They're added some more. Why not? Sure. Just win the World Series and add another guy. Why not? Go for it. God damn. Um, so I don't have a firm answer for you there, Frosted Granola, but. I say trade people. Um, in, <laughs> the answer is trade everybody and get. I, I would like to see at least one of the guys hit and trade away the ones that don't hit. And if they can figure a way to learn that, I think they'll be. They'll be yeah, around. but and again, those guys. See, like we we're talking about Battenfield and Gaddis, those guys have a much larger uh, margin for error. And so, if they can squeeze something out of Gaddis or Battenfield and turn them into a four or five starter, and they can get them throwing ninety three, ninety four with 
couple of secondary stuff and get guys like Plezak out of the rotation, fine. Do that. Um, so our last one we'll wrap up this week from at oh, there goes Michael Zakriski on Facebook. He asked, what has happened to Josh Naylor's sense of the strike zone? Has he always swung in pitches out far of the zone as he did this past weekend and I've just never noticed? Or is something unique happening this season? Um, I feel like like we just talked about streaky guys. He's always one of those guys where sometimes it seems like he has great command of the zone. Other times he does. That was, <laughs> I watched that. I didn't get to see most of these games live, but I watched part of that one because I wasn't at home. And that was maybe the worst at bat I've seen in a long time. I, I didn't get a chance to actually get the specifics of it, but I don't know if you know which one I'm talking about where Josh Naylor was up and just swung it three, absolutely not even close pitches up and out of the zone. Um, yeah, he just kind of goes to streets like that. There was also, <laughs> one point I, I i don't know if i mentioned this on the podcast or not but when when the show first came to xbox somebody tweeted like a gif of when josh nearly swung in a high pitch so hard his helmet came off and they're like this is what it's like facing xbox the show players because <laughs> they swing at everything and sometimes sometimes josh Naylor just looks like that it, it, the difference is just if he makes contact on it or not like if he hits one of those then he's this great aggressive guy who yeah wins games in his clutch if he doesn't he just looks hideous up there at the plate but I don't know. It, it's this year. I think it's interesting because his strikeout rate. I mean, it's early, obviously, is lower than his career averages. So it's one of those things where, like, you know, the 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 listener has an excellent it's an excellent point. He definitely looked nasty a few times. Um, I th- one has to assume he's pressing at least a little bit, um, just because he's kind of starting off a little slow. I think he wanted to be good. Is he is early going? He's swinging it. First pitch, 45.8% of the time, which is a career high for him. Um, he is, I don't know, his contact rates in the zone are up. His chase rates are up. And he is swinging a lot more, quite honestly. It's, it's not, well, actually, he's swinging just in pitches. Wow, Jesus Christ. So he's chasing 37% of the time, but he's swinging in the zone 70% of the time, which uh, both are higher than his career average. But the zone swing is not that much higher than his career average. Maybe they, people are just seeing him have a certain level of aggression swing again swing rate is higher than almost ever hmm. i think he's bad just just looks way worse than everybody else's bad because when he's when he's off he looks so off he does he just looks like he doesn't even belong in the field sometimes um but again like you said when he runs into one it goes and goes and goes the fact that he only has singles and home runs is kind of funny but we'll see i don't know i mean that i'll say this guys have Days like that. I mentioned CJ Abrams on the Nats cutting one hit into his chest. He just didn't feel it. I've seen him make hard plays. He's a talented young man. Uh, I think Josh will figure it out. I hope he figures it out because I like it when he is cooking and I want him to continue to rock the baby. And I think he's great. And I think he'll hit 30 home runs still. I love him. <laughs> oh, yeah. I still fully believe in Josh Neely. He's just going to go through those couple games where he's yeah. swinging so hard his damn helmet flies off and we love him for it. I just I just hope he can figure out how to hit lefties. Um, that's, that's the dream here. Um, yeah, that'll do it for us this week, Merritt. If you don't already follow us on Cover the Corner, Cover the Corner on Facebook, CoverTheCorner.com. I am at Matt ROI on Twitter. Merritt is at Merrill Lunch, like Merrill Lynch with lunch. And uh, Merritt, talk to you next week. I'll be there.